Please do turn with me this morning to Genesis and to chapter 3. Our subject this morning is Satan's War Begins. Satan's Long War Begins. The long war against God and the war that's being battled every day against each one of us. Creation has been completed in the Genesis record, and as we're considering these foundational truths, we're going to look this morning at this great battle. We're not going to look at the fall, we'll save that for another time, but we're going to look at the serpent, we're going to look at our great enemy, the battlefield upon which this war is being waged, and the methods that he will use against you and against me. He uses them every day. And so this is our subject. Satan's war begins. Genesis 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle, more devious. Well, what a sudden change. Chapter 2, we read that creation had been completed. God has wonderfully provided for you and for me. He's provided bountifully of his abundance. Everything that we read in chapter 2 was of God's provision in every possible way. A garden, food, beautiful things to look at, hummingbirds to see. Trees, plants, animals, and they didn't even have to work because God had put this humid canopy over the earth so that it was watered and rivers flowing through the Garden of Eden. Pure provision. We see also the enjoyment. God made us to enjoy the world around us. When we stay inside, we don't go out. Some can't, I know. But when we stay inside and don't go out and don't see what God has made, we're being denied the opportunity for the pure, natural enjoyment of what God has made. We see as well that he's given a purpose he says to Adam that Adam is to dress the garden. This wasn't work. Some of us who are gardeners, we don't consider it to be work to go out and to see what God has made. He is to dress it, to care for it, and to be within it, to soak up all its glories and Eve, she's to be a helper, a supporter. The two of them are complementary. They each have skills. On their own, they're not complete. They need each other. How much we need each other today. How much we need what each other brings to the other. Especially in marriage, and in the same picture of marriage in the church, where God has also joined people together, the one 
to be needful of the other, supportive of the other. God has given them freedom, we see here. Adam can roam around, he can see all the sights, there's complete freedom, freedom of movement. People don't have that today. There's borders. You can't easily cross those borders. But there was no borders in the Garden of Eden. There was just one tree. One tree. A boundary. They couldn't go near the tree that God had said. He distinguishes two trees. He says there is the tree of life. It's referred to in a further chapter, further down, verse 22. It tells us that they had not yet eaten. Verse 22 of chapter 3, the Lord God said, Behold, after the fall, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. They had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they had not yet eaten of the tree of life. So they had to be put out of the garden because the tree of life would give eternal life. You see, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that brought death. There's the tree of life that brings eternal life. Right there, in the beginning of Genesis, is the two trees, death and life. Will you eat of one? Well, we have, and we know death. But will you eat of the other that brings eternal life? We'll think of that in future weeks. They are told that they must obey. This is the only requirement. Obey. Don't touch. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There in verse 9. This is the one condition. If you want blessing, you must obey. That's true of life, isn't it? Do you want your life to be blessed? Do you want happiness? The condition is obedience, spiritual obedience, moral obedience. The problem is we don't, we don't obey. We don't keep the condition. Well, what's the consequence? The consequence if they touched, if they ate of that tree, there would be death, certain death. They knew of right and wrong right from Genesis 2. It wasn't when the Ten Commandments were given that they were given a moral compass. No, it's given right here in a very contracted form. Don't touch, don't eat. The problem is they didn't listen. As we shall see, at this time before the fall, there is no barrier between God and man. They walked through the garden freely, and they could see God, 
and they could hear him and they spoke as friends. They were one. The man and the woman, verse 25, they walked freely and there was no barrier between them. They were not ashamed. Do you see how life had no boundaries, no divisions, no barriers? God and man, man and woman, they were free. There was communication. There was love. There was oneness. But all that was to change. How long was it before things changed? We don't know the answer to this. We tend to think the whole of the garden hadn't been explored because the tree of life had not yet been eaten of. We imagine that Adam and Eve would have explored quickly, particularly the two trees that God had given a name to. Was it hours? Was it days? We just don't know. But I don't think it was very long before the fall came. So we're going to look firstly at Satan, secondly at the battlefield, our souls, and then thirdly of the many methods of Satan. These first five verses in Genesis 3, they are a gold mine. Do you know in life when we're asking the questions, why? Why has my wife left me? Why are my children disobeying me? Why are they so cruel to me at work? Why do the government get so much wrong? Do you know we find the answers in these five verses? They tell us why society is the way it is today. They tell us why there's a war in Ukraine. They tell us why I can't do what I want to do. And the evil things that I don't want to do, I do. They tell us why our words are not controlled. Why husbands are cruel to their wives. The answers are here. Man's inhumanity to man. War, evil, the problem of evil. They're all explained in these five verses. So let's look to see. Let's speak first of our great enemy. Verse 1. Reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. God needed no introduction. And Satan has just the most short introduction. Now, suddenly, into this paradise of beauty and order and closeness and communion and fellowship, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. The devil wasn't actually a serpent. The devil is a fallen angel. And he comes in disguise. He takes on the form of a serpent. Very appropriate. I hate snakes. Don't know whether you like snakes. I don't think 
Many do. I have a friend and he keeps a few snakes. Oh, they're horrible creatures. Is there any creature that scares more than a snake? The serpent was more subtle. In the ancient East and in Jewish literature, the snake, the serpent, is always symbolic of Satan. The word means hissing. That's the Hebrew word, hissing. Our adversary, our enemy that hisses, the one that accuses, points the finger, blames. Turn with me to Revelation. If you've got your Bibles, this is an important verse. So much of Genesis is paralleled in the book of Revelation. Revelation in chapter 12. This is worthy of our attention as we look at these verses. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9. This is what John says in his great pictural book, the book of Revelation, full of pictures and images. He says, and the great dragon Dragon is another name for a serpent. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan. Four names given to our great enemy. What did he do? Which deceiveth the whole world. No one is excluded. And he was cast out of heaven into the earth and his helpers. There were some other fallen angels were cast out with him. Do you know often the key to Genesis is found in Revelation and the key to Revelation is found in the book of Genesis. This is the great enemy our greatest enemy. He's not a friend in any way. He comes pretending to be a friend, taking the form of a frightening beast that hisses and deceives. He's subtle. He comes and prowls. He comes into your life and you don't know he's there came through the television in the 1950s in black and white. Oh, harmless. The 60s and the 70s, color amplified. The age of so-called enlightenment and freedom. He came into our homes and the filth was exploited by Hollywood. Oh, it's harmless. It's our friend. He's come to entertain. And it gets worse and worse. Gets into the mind, the images that he stamps upon the mind. And we thought the television was supposed to be for information. 
to inform. We welcome it in. It's not all bad. It's like the car. It can kill. It can take you to hospital. It can do good. It can do bad. But Satan gets in through that gate. He's crafty. He's sly. He's slimy. He comes in more subtle, more crafty than any other animal. It's not actually Satan. Satan puts the voice into the serpent so that unlike any other animal, I know the parrot can say a few words, but the serpent speaks because Satan has got into this creature. What is it that motivates Satan? This is interesting. Envy. He couldn't have what he wanted. He wanted to usurp his powers. He comes in bitterness. Do you know that gets into men and women? Somebody who didn't get what they wanted, couldn't have what they desired, and bitterness gets in like a cancer. Do you know if something bad has happened in your life and I feel for you, if it has a tragedy, a sadness, be very careful that bitterness doesn't start to eat in. Bitter people get more bitter. When they have one thing to be bitter about, there'll be a second and a third, and before you know, they become revengeful. Envy, bitterness, revenge. That's what motivates Satan. The trial, the temptation that we're going to look at, Adam and Eve were capable of resisting. How do I say that? Because the Lord promises us that he will never give us any temptation that we're not capable of resisting. But they made a choice not to. More on another occasion. That's our great enemy. What about the battlefield? Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said, a voice, a question, a challenge. Do you know the battlefield is your soul? Your soul, my soul, we all have a soul. Your body, oh, that's important. But your soul never dies. Your soul is where the battle of good and evil is being fought this very morning. As I'm speaking, some of you will be turning off. Some of you, Satan will be distracting you. You'll be thinking of 101 things apart from the word of God, the battle to distract, to destroy, and to dominate your heart 
and mined with something else. Military generals. Down through the years, they've often looked back on great battles. The Battle of Waterloo, the Battle of Agincourt. And they look back and they see, what was the battlefield like? Was it flat? Was the trees? So we look back on the battlefield here this morning of the first battle. Now we think of our own John Bunyan this morning. Of course, he's so helpful, isn't he? When it comes to the enemy and the battlefield and the methods in his wonderful book, The Holy War, he has pictures so very helpful. He speaks of the battlefield as being man's soul. The soul within a man or within a woman. And the enemy he gives a name to, Diabolus. Taken from the word diabolical. A word for Satan. The enemy, Diabolus. The battlefield, man's soul. And how does he get in? Five gates. He comes through ear gate, eye gate, feel gate, the things that we touch. He comes through nose gate, giving us a smell and a scent for things which are evil. He comes even through the mouth, words spoken, taken in. Five gates surrounding Mansoul. And he pictures in the center Heart Castle. Heart Castle. And do you know what Diabolus wants to do? He wants to enter through any one of the five gates. In my experience, it's often the eye gate. He comes through first. And he wants to take over the castle. He wants to get through the gate, any of those five gates he wants to get in, and he wants to take over. He wants to be the governor, Diabolus. Do you know who the rightful governor is of heart, castle, and mansoul? King Shaddai, the rightful king. In Bunyan's beautiful picture, he wants to take over your life, my life. And that battle is won very early in life for most. He takes over. He starts to block up the gates one by one. He sends in his troops. They've got lots of names. Mr. Wilbywill. They come in, the Diabolans, he calls them. They're going to take over Mr. Heart-Hearted, Hard-Hearted. Mr. Tell Lies, the more I tell lies, the harder my heart gets, the more resistant I am to truth, drunkenness. Oh, that makes me insensible. 
makes a fool of me. Gives me no thought for God because that's my pleasure. Mr. Filth. Mr. No Peace. False Peace. Oh, there's many characters that Satan sends into your life and my life. He wants to block up the gates and take over the castle of your life. Is there somebody here this morning? The rightful governor of your life is no longer the Lord, no longer the one that made you. He sent his troops in, our great enemy. Let me suggest to you some of the ways that he comes in as he entered into the woman and the man's life. He comes in disguise. He won't announce his arrival. It will be subtly, maybe an app that you've downloaded onto your phone shouldn't really be there. And through that app, it will be easier for you to look at filth. Filth. Bunyan knew your heart better than you do. Maybe he'll start telling you some doubts and questions. There's no God. The truth? Oh, you can, you can shrink it. You can just have what they call be good to your neighbor. That's enough. No high, holy, perfect laws. Maybe he starts with this. There's no Lord's Day. Oh, if I can take over one day in seven. Oh, I've got into the week. If I can put them off the track on Sundays, I've got them for the rest of the week. Doubts, disguise, he casts questions. How about this one? God is denying you freedom. He's keeping back good things from you. You ever heard that lie? I deserve better. You deserve better clothes. You deserve to be the center of attention. You deserve to be lifted up on a pedestal. You deserve better. You're not being given the recognition that you should have. You're quite good. You've achieved. You've accomplished. You're a person that should be acknowledged. That's one of the lies that he tells us. You're not as free as you think you are. Oh, Satan's so devious. He's a conversationalist. He comes to Eve and he starts chatting. Has God said? Just throw it out there. Just pop a question in to make you think. You could have a better wife. You could have a better life. You could have a better this, a better that. Has God said, is that really a boundary? No, surely not. He pretends to be your friend. I'm on your side, he says. Let me ask you this question. Has God really said? You're just imagining it. Ye shall not eat of the tree 
of the garden. You can eat of every tree, explore, experiment. He comes in through the eyes. He says, go and look, just look. One look, that won't do any harm. One image on your computer, oh, that won't do you any harm. You deserve it. You need it. Go and download a bit more. Save it. Share it. Go to the dark web. Nobody will know. Nobody will notice. Eye gate. Then the heart stirred. I want it. I need it. More, more. I'm an addict. Can't do without it. I need help. He batters the conscience. The voice that once spoke saying, No, no, no. That's unclean. That's wrong. That's unfair. Why should my wife be treated like that? Me looking at something else instead of her. He batters the conscience into submission until the voice has disappeared. It's just barely there. This is what Satan does. Do you know his biggest lie of all? Let's look at it. Has God said? This word of God, complete, perfect, infallible, everything I need for life and eternity, has God said? Is there really ten commandments? Why not nine? Eight? Why do I have to believe in everything that God has said? Has God said the first question undermines the whole of the word of God. Why does this church preach, read, teach the word of God to everybody we can, distribute it? Because the word of God is truth. It's all that we need for life and for eternity. And from the very beginning it's attacked has God said. Do you know he'll attack you this week? He'll help you to lower down your priority for God's word. He'll take away the, tr- the scripture, the truth from your mind. When the Holy Spirit stirs your heart with some verse that you know, it will be drowned out. The diabolons. Have you let any in this week? Into your life? Through the eyes? Through the ears? Eating away at God's government. Do you know that's one of Satan's worst ploys? He doesn't want us to submit to God. God's way is loving and kind. His rule is merciful and gracious. The people he sets upon us, it's for our good and we will not submit. That's what Eve does. Instead of having God's loving rule, 
and the kindness of God which was for their good. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat. She knows what God said. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of just one tree. One tree. How many millions of trees were in the Garden of Eden? One tree. She had to go and touch it. And he had to eat of it. Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. The subtle methods of Satan. I want to draw to conclusion, but I want to show you how this five verses is absolutely pivotal to your understanding of life, your family, society, and everything. This is the first question in the Bible. Has God said? It's interesting. The second question in the Bible, do you know what that is? The second question is a question asked by God. Where are you? The first question led to death and murder. The second question was when Adam and Eve were lost, fallen into sin. And the question is a question of mercy and grace. Where are you? You don't know where I am. You don't know where you are. You're lost. Where are you? God asks the question, not because he didn't know where they were, but because he wanted to rescue them. He wanted to show them the way back to God from the dark paths of sin. The first question is a lie. The second question is a question of mercy. This is the first liar in the Bible. The original, the greatest liar, Satan. It's the first lie ever told. And it will be repeated again and again. It's the first battle, the first war, and it hasn't stopped. The victory is secure. But the battle wages on and on and on in my life. And in your life, do you know the first motive? We've thought of this, revenge, envy, bitterness, and that carries on. How often do we see that? If you find yourself motivated by envy, stop. Bitterness, stop. Revenge, stop. Consequences will be dreadful. The first murders... The die has been cast in these verses. Through Adam, death entered the world. Yes, they weren't to die yet, but they would die. The deed has been done. The seedbed of all sin is in these verses. Falsehood. Empty promises, they'll be repeated again and again. The first damage to the soul here. But here's something more positive. 
Do you know the need for truth has just been created? A great chasm has opened up. And into that chasm, we need gospel truth. And the need for conversion and redemption has been created. And God will fill it. He will overflow it. You ask why God allowed evil to enter the world? We ask that question and again and again, and it's a mysterious question. The best I can do is to say this, so that more glory will be given to God. Because out of this chasm of evil and sin and deceit and lies, God will overflow his mercy and his grace. And even more glory will be given to God because of the need of salvation. Because of sin, many will reject him eternally. And because grace and mercy will triumph, millions, billions will be saved for all eternity. The two questions. Has God said? How significant. And the question of God. Where are you? Where are you this morning? Do you know the Lord? Is Satan still your enemy? Do you believe his lies? That you can have pleasure with no consequences? Or do you believe the Lord when he calls you this morning and says, where are you?